Good morning. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12 of the letter to the Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is summing up his message to Jewish believers, many of whom are wavering in their faith and considering the possibility of returning to the tenets and the ceremonies of Judaism. He tells them in this chapter to lay aside what is weighing them down as they run the race of faith. And part of this laying aside is the laying aside of sin. And he calls it the sin, the sin that so closely clings to us, or as the old King James put it, the sin that doth so easily beset us. The writer then goes on to appeal to the example of the Lord Jesus himself, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Christ is the ultimate example of perseverance, of patient endurance, of straining ahead toward the finish line when all the forces of earth and hell were against him. The term used for founder isn't just naming Jesus as the author of our faith, but the pioneer, the forerunner who ran it and plotted it out before us. As we learned in our last lesson, Jesus is the very one who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, enables us to follow his example as we undergo the process of sanctification, the putting off of the old man of sin and the putting on of the new man of holiness. The difference is that the Son of Man had no body of sin that he had to lay aside in the same way that his people do, but still he was called to faithfully resist temptation and produce a holy righteousness that could be applied to us, his people. Jesus' example of endurance is then paired with the divine discipline, which is the very reason we encounter various trials in our Christian race. As children of the Heavenly Father, the trials we encounter are not just just random bumps in the road that we encounter, but they're carefully designed and purposed by God to do us good and to produce the fruit of righteousness, which he calls the peaceable fruit of righteousness or of holiness in our lives. Well, J.C. Ryle, in his uh, third chapter on holiness, he begins with verse 14 of this chapter. Let's look at it. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Throughout this chapter, Ryle paints us a vivid picture of what practical holiness looks like, much like the portrait of the godly man we studied in a previous Sunday school series. He then explains some reasons why practical holiness is so important 
to the Christian. And then gives some words of application. So let's begin. He, he finds in this verse a sober warning for believers. When we apply the categories of logic to this, we would call it a sine qua non. A truth that without which something else cannot possibly happen. And this holiness without which no one will see the Lord is something Christians must strive for. That's what the author of Hebrews is teaching. In effect, this is the believer's race. It's the godly quality of Christian character, the Christ-likeness, the fruit of the Spirit that sanctification is meant to produce in our lives. So Ryle asks us point blank, are we holy? Will we see the Lord? He calls us to examine our souls and to be honest with ourselves. Are we seeing there the presence of practical holiness and an honest desire to see more? To Ryle and indeed to us, it's a timely question to ask. It's a question that concerns all kinds of people, whatever their rank or occupation And like Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, it's a matter of utmost eternal importance. What then is practical holiness? What kind of man or woman would God call holy? Ryle begins by pointing out some counterfeits or imposters. Balaam had great knowledge. Judas He had a profession of faith. Herod had done many great works. Jehu had religious zeal. The rich young ruler had respectability and moral fiber. But none of these men were considered holy. Ryle approaches his topic very carefully so as not to cloud the waters with misinformation. Number one, practical holiness begins as a mindset. A mindset. A pattern of thinking that agrees with God. God himself and God alone is holy, holy, holy. That is, he's holy in an absolute, essential way. Therefore, all he does and is, is holy. All he thinks, determines, and plans is holy. And so is every word that proceeds out of his holy mouth. So we find the mind of God in the word of God. Therefore, a holy person will naturally measure the world and everything in it by the standard of the word. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So it begins with a a mindset that agrees with God. Number two, holy people shun the opposite of what is holy. Loving the good 
can't be separated from hating and shunning the evil. Adam and Eve learned what sin was by choosing the evil. But you and I are called to resist what we know to be evil by shunning every known sin. A holy person finds in himself or herself a hearty desire to do God's will. To follow every known commandment of God. This is our desire. His commands forbid certain things and they require other things. You shall do this, you shall not do that. The holy person not only agrees, but wants to obey these divine commands. The psalmist says, because I consider your precepts right, I hate every false way. Psalm 119, 128. Number three, a holy person with a holy mindset and a holy desire will, of course, wish to imitate the most holy role models possible. First and foremost, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's the word of God that vividly shows the glory of Jesus' flawless obedience to the Father and his unblemished and vividly holy character before others. The heart of the holy ones cry out, Oh, that I might be more like my Savior. Bearing with and forgiving others. Unselfish, not pleasing himself. Walking in love, lowly-minded and humble. Spending frequent and prolonged times in prayer and intercession. A faithful witness to the truth. These are all character qualities we see in Christ. His Father's will, his chief meat and drink, full of love and compassion for sinners. Bold and courageous when confronting sin, not looking to the praise of men, doing God's work, even when it meant denying his closest relations. And the list goes on. Christ told his followers, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Practical holiness means seeking genuine Christ likeness and nothing less. He is our forerunner in this pursuit. For no one in heaven or on earth denied himself more than Jesus did. So we will seek to be like Christ. Number four, practical holiness in a person will show itself in qualities that make that person easy and pleasant to be around and to live with. Things like meekness and patience, gentleness and kindliness, not insisting on standing on our rights or being first in line, bearing with others' weaknesses and faults, ready to overlook and forgive easily, ready to lend a hand and listen to troubled people with understanding. 
And I would add to Ryle's list the quality of being ready and willing to affirm others. As we saw in our last uh, Sunday School series, commending those things in other people that God commends. Number five, a holy person in God's eyes is one who's keenly aware of the lusts of his flesh. The lusts of his flesh. The perils of her bodily appetites. They're watchful and they're sensitive to the carnal inclinations that can easily break loose and cause a person to topple into sinful behavior. Holy people are ones well acquainted with the virtue of self-denial. Like Paul, they're willing to beat their bodies into subjection. They insist on taking their own sins seriously to the point where other people might consider them puritanical. And uh, words like that. Martin Luther studied law before he became a monk and entered the monastery. He'd spend hours in the confessional confessing his sins as a monk for he was so aware of how his smallest sin offended a holy God by violating his law. But then even as a believer in justification by faith alone, he taught that the entire Christian life is to be a life of continual repentance and receiving the Lord's forgiveness through the blood of our Savior. Like the first century believers would wash each other's feet because of the dusty roads that they walked on. You and I are called to keep our spiritual feet clean by a daily cleansing by the blood of Christ. We're sensitive to our sin, even as Martin Luther was. Number six, holiness we often forget is just as concerned, maybe even more concerned, with the duties we perform toward others as with the negatives we avoid. J.C. Ryle mentions charity and brotherly kindness, also a spirit of mercy and benevolence. Practical holiness is just that. It's practical. It involves our practice, what, what we set our hearts and our minds and our bodies to do. There are many emotions, impulses, desires, and thoughts within each of us that seek, that battle for control. Well, Paul teaches us to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit always seeks to fill us with love and concern for the needs of others, especially those of fellow believers. Not only are we to abhor things like slander and cheating and dishonesty, but we're to engage in positive good deeds that give of our time, our talents, our labor, our creativity. We can well ask ourselves how many people in our lives are better off, drawn closer to Christ, 
by the simple works of charity and mercy they see from us? Do they see the qualities of love displayed in us that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13 or we read in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Number seven, when a holy person enters into an obligation or an agreement or a relationship, he or she is always careful to fulfill all the duties that come with it, to fulfill them completely, on time, and well. Daniel has been given to us as an example of a diligent workman against whom nothing could be found to accuse, save for the matters concerning the law of his God. Daniel 6, 4-5. Whatever you do, Colossians three twenty three, do it hardly as unto the Lord, not unto men. Not slothful in business, Romans twelve eleven, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Those words of the Apostle Paul cover all sorts of practical relationships. God Himself entered into sacred covenants with peoples and individuals and pledged himself by a solemn oath never to break his word. And Jesus taught us, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Matthew 5.37 Number eight. Practical holiness goes far deeper than scrupulous keeping of outward rules. Christ warned his followers their righteousness must exceed that of the scrupulous Pharisees who tithed even their garden herbs. Our concern for holiness must go deeper, penetrate to the very heart and soul, if it is to be true and genuine. Ryle writes that a holy man follows after deeper issues such as purity of heart, fear of God, humility, and spiritual mindedness. The heart is seen as in Scripture as the controlling inner person, the seat of our thoughts, desires, longings, and motivations. And the Bible tells us that the heart of human beings is deceitful, and it's desperately sick, incapable of being fully understood. So the task of one who would be practically holy is certainly to keep a careful watch on one's own heart. Out of the heart of a person, Jesus said, come all sorts of sinful thoughts, words, and actions which cause defilement. Matthew 15. So one who would be perfect, one who would perfect holiness out of love for Christ will seek to purge the heart of such things. Purity of heart will be a constant goal. Realizing the heart, Ryle writes, is like tinder. It can be set on fire very easily. They'll feed the the desire to live before God's face in a way that has a loving dread of displeasing him like a father 
before the Father's face. They'll view themselves like Paul as the chief of sinners, weak and in need of help. They'll seek to make heavenly things their chief treasures and chief joys. Christians can please God and they can displease God by what we choose to do. And we are called to respond in gratitude for what God has given us. So seeking heavenly things, regarding them as our chief treasures. Number nine, Ryle ends this outline of a holy person's pursuits, what they chase after, by saying that he would never wish to discourage a believer, a Christian's tender conscience, or make a righteous heart sad by overburdening him with a list of requirements. But he does insist that there's nothing in that list that he outlined that wouldn't describe a true true Christian's true desire. The regenerated heart of the believer certainly longs after all of these qualities once he learns about them. He admits that every true believer is dealing with the inner enemy of remaining sin that should daily be confessed and put to death in that Christian's life. A true believer wants more than anything to be free from that remaining sin and, and thus longs for the day of final glorification, seeing our Savior face to face, at which point all of the dross will be burned away and all that is left will be the gold of holiness. Ryle takes another page to revisit what we talked about last week, the reality and nature of sanctification in the Christian life, how it's progressive and how it's fueled by the Spirit and how it comes in stages at different Degrees in various Christian lives. But then he adds as a warning. But after every allowance, I cannot see how any man deserves to be called holy who willingly allows himself in sins and is not humbled and ashamed because of them. I dare not call anyone holy who makes a habit of neglecting known duties and willingly doing what he knows God has commanded him not to do. The Apostle John teaches us that we deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin. 1 John 1.8 It is how we respond to and deal with our sin that marks us as true believers in Christ. Practical holiness is a necessity. Without it, no one will see the Lord. It's something for which every Christian must strive. Unlike our sanctification or our justification, which is a work of God and God alone, sanctification is a ministry of the Spirit that we are called to cooperate with and strive or agonize after this thing called holiness. Of course, motivated 
not out of guilt or dread, but by love and gratitude toward God who first loved us. Christ-like character in heart and life. That's what we are called to strive for. But Ryle goes beyond this and gives us some reasons for the importance of holiness. And there are some excellent ones. First, he rules out the false reason that many give, that holiness is what saves us. God forbid, Ryle writes, that I should ever say so. None of our good works can pay the debt that we owe to a thrice holy God. By grace you are saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. As St. Augustine wrote hundreds of years ago, even our best works are but splendid vices. They're tainted by sin, even with our best intentions, and add nothing to our righteous standing before God. That standing was earned and paid for by the Lord Jesus himself. Still, the importance of striving for practical holiness is staggering in its scope. First of all, because God clearly and plainly demands it of us in the scriptures. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ instructed that we must therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.8 The Apostle Paul wrote, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Uh, not Paul, but Peter. 1 Peter 1.15 Holiness is not to be seen only as our heavenly standing, but as our earthly pursuit, our earthly occupation as well. It's our divine calling that we must obey. Secondly, practical holiness is important because it's one glorious purpose for which Christ came into the world. Paul wrote to Titus, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Titus 2.14 Jesus humbled himself to the death of the criminal on the cross so that we criminals might trust in the sacrifice for sin's guilt that he gave and then renounce sin's claim upon us. How can we continue in the very crimes, the very lawless deeds for which our Holy Savior paid with his life's blood? Thirdly, striving for holiness is important because of what it proves about us. It proves that we, A, have true saving faith. It proves that, B, we are true children of God. It proves, C, that our love for the Lord Jesus is genuine and sincere. And, D, it also proves to the world, as people see our good works and our holy lifestyle, that our religion is more than just talk. 
In this way, the law and the gospel agree. They're united. James teaches that there is a thing known as dead faith. James 2, 14 to 26. It's by the works of Christ alone that Christians are justified in the court of heaven. But James says that it's by our own works of righteousness, of obedience, that our professions of faith are justified in the eyes of people. Jesus withered a deceptive fig tree to its roots when it promised him refreshment of fruit out of season, but proved fruitless in the end. Mark 11, 12 to 14. The fruit produced in our lives by the Holy Spirit proves that the faith in Christ we claim to have is a supernatural gift from God and not just a human counterfeit. Number four, speaking of being justified in the eyes of people, practical holiness is important because it's the most likely way of doing good to people around us. There is a visible reality to true holy living that is unmistakable and forces sinners to think and to ponder. On the other hand, much harm is done to the cause of Christ's kingdom by believers who talk the talk of religion and yet make small efforts to resemble their Lord in the way that they work, live, and act. I've observed professing believers on the job who cut corners in various tasks, leave early on breaks and come back late, grumble and complain as loud and as often as their unsaved co-workers. Ryle writes that it grieves him to have to say this, but such Christians should blush to name the name of Jesus at work. On the other hand, growing in holiness can mean making a notable difference as we serve the Lord in our shops, our schools, and our marketplaces. So practical holiness is, one, commanded by the Lord. It's, two, a crucial purpose for Christ's saving mission. Three, it's the only way that we know him. Only real evidence of our genuine faith, our love for Jesus, our sonship in God's family, and justification before our fellow men. And four, it's the greatest way to do good to others. And by the way, five, it's the only way for us as Christians to be truly happy and at peace with our own souls. God has wisely ordered it, says Ryle, that our well-being and our well-doing are linked together. Even if our good works add nothing to our election or our justification, our sense of assurance that we are elect, that we are justified, is strongly tied to our pursuit of a holy life. Now by this do we know him, that we keep his commandments, 1 John 2, 3. Let us love with actions and in truth. This is how we set our hearts at rest, 
before his presence. 1 John 3, 18 and 19. Those who are careless about being watchful and prone to backsliding often struggle with their sense of peace and assurance. Taking firm steps to excel in our works of obedience will certainly please the Lord and bring a greater sense of peace and assurance from the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Ryle writes with compassion, I'm sure we should all be ready to make allowance for much backsliding, for much occasional deadness in professing Christians. I know a road may lead from one point to another and yet have many a winding and turn. And a man may be truly holy and yet be drawn aside by many an infirmity. But he lovingly bids us to keep in mind that progress in practical holiness is the only way a Christian may truly know assurance, peace, and happiness. And speaking of peace and happiness, number six, practicing holiness here on earth is the only way to prepare for the holy peace and joy that we hope to experience in our heavenly home. Those who care little or nothing about holy things, people, or behavior would certainly find little or nothing in heaven to please them. Ryle writes, Now perhaps you think the saints of God too strict and particular or serious. You rather avoid them. You have no delight in their society. Well, there will be no other company in heaven. Think you that such a one would delight to meet David and Paul and John after a life spent in doing the very things they spoke against? That he would rejoice to to meet Jesus after cleaving to the sins for which Jesus died? So Ryle goes on and he applies his lesson on practical holiness by preaching both to the uncertain professed believer and to the Christian who stands assured of his salvation. As we examine our daily lives, are we truly seeing the evidence of holiness he's been describing? And if we do, are we convinced that we are truly considering how important that holiness is, without which no one will see the Lord? Whatever we may think fit to say, he writes, we must be holy if we would see the Lord. Where is our Christianity if we are not? We must not merely have a Christian name and Christian knowledge. We must have a Christian character also. We must be saints on earth if ever we mean to be saints in heaven. God has said it and he will not go back. He quotes the great Puritan, John Owen. Did Christ die and shall sin live? Was he crucified in the world? And shall our affections to the world be quick and lively? Oh, where is the spirit of him who by the cross of Christ was crucified to the world and the world to him? 
Ryle's final word of advice in this chapter, would you be holy? Then abide in Christ. He is the physician to whom you must daily go if you would stay well. He is the manna which you must daily eat and the rock of which you must daily drink. His arm is the arm on which you must daily lean as you come up out of the wilderness of this world. You must not only be rooted, you must be built up in Christ. For without his help, without his character, no one shall see the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you've reminded us in your word and uh, through this fine author that holiness is important. That our practical holiness shows both to ourselves and to the world that we truly belong to you. And so, Lord, may this be our pursuit and may we see it as of utmost importance in our daily lives for This is the race we are called to run. And help us, Lord, to be an encouragement to one another, to keep running that race, to not falter and and give in to the call of the world, the flesh and the devil that would sidetrack us from that pursuit. Lord, help us to be faithful, help us to be watchful and eager to confess our sins and to be cleansed day by day, moment by moment, so that we can be of use to you. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.